Someone once said that the parables of Jesus, don't get afraid, I'm going to yell, okay? Prepare yourself. Have a boom effect, right? I, I warned you. <laughs> why, did they, why did they say that? Because they said that the parable ratchets up a truth that as it grips your heart, you begin to feel the squeeze and eventually the tables, the tables flip and you realize that that parable is about you. So this parable about the two brothers, the people that were there were beginning to understand it. And he's talking parables of the kingdom. He's saying that the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God functions in this way, behaves in this way, has these characteristics. So when he comes now to the last parable in that chapter, he says, listen to another parable. In other words, prepare your hearts it's going to grab you and it's going to squeeze. Okay, so prepare your hearts. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Okay, so this landowner is a planner. He figured out that if he is going to put a vineyard in this land, he has to protect it. So he put a fence. So animals don't come in. Wild beasts don't come in. Foxes, whatever, doesn't come in and start eating the crop before he has the chance to do what he intends to do with it. And what he intends to do with it is make good wine. So he not only puts the vineyard, and the vineyard has vines. You don't plant one vine in a vineyard. You plant many. And each of them have to be tended. So you have to put a little bit of manure. You have to make sure that it gets enough sunlight. It's not in the shade. The temperature is right so that it's facing the right direction. And you water it. You prepare it. You tend it. You steward it. You take care of it. So he also dug a wine press in it. And why dug? Because the wine press has to be able to be accessible by the workers so they don't have to climb high to do it. But he put a high watchtower so that they can watch and see if there's anybody coming from afar to attack and steal it, to steal the crop. So it's guarded. Okay, what do we understand so far? He put a vineyard, planted many vines, guarded it, fenced it in so it's protected, put that utensil or that device that will take the fruit of it and produce a good product. And he protected it with scouts or guards. When he leased it to tenants, oh, I thought he was doing all that for himself. He's not. He's doing it for the benefit of others. He's doing it so that people can come into that vineyard, work it, people that he trusts, because the way it works in that time is a little different than the way it works. Maybe it does still work the same. If you get a lease in a, depart in a uh, mall today, the landlord, whether it's Cadillac, Fairview, or whoever, will demand a portion of your profits as part of the lease. The lease. At least that's what I've heard. My landlord at the print shop doesn't do that. It's a flat fee. Whatever I do, I do. 
He doesn't care. If I win, I lose. If I make profit, I don't. So there's no profit sharing. But these landlords, this one here, is a pretty advanced landlord. He wants to make a profit from the land that he is leasing out to these tenants. So it's sort of like a franchise. And if you don't do well, he doesn't get any benefit from it. And the people that were listening to this parable know this principle. They know that the landlord is looking to make a profit. So they have also been farmers. They have also been tenants. And they know that when the landlord does not get the return that he wants, he will get rid of you and bring in another tenant who will work it and produce. Because in his mind, the landlord has this understanding that this land is worth so much to me. This land is going to generate thousands of bottles of wine that I'm going to be able to sell on the market and, or that the tenant is going to be able to sell on the market. So I want the profit of 10,000 bottles of wine next year. That's a huge vineyard. When the tar and, and he went away. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slave to the tenant to collect his produce. Maybe he didn't have the vineyard produce wine there, but it was making the juice. So he was going to take a portion of the juice back to his farm and make his own. Whatever the case, the produce may be the wine. It may be the grapes. Whatever it is, it's the fruit of that land. But the tenant seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. There's a little bit of a rebellion going on. The landlord is not going to get his share this year. The tenants killed his servants that came to collect. Bad job to have a collector in those days. <laughs> Again, he sent another slave or other slaves, more than the first. So he didn't send three this time. He sent a whole group. And they treated them in the same way. And then he sent his son. Now, Put your mind in the mind of a person listening to the story in Jesus' time. They know that the landowner has workers. And they know that they're under authority. They know that they represent the authority of the landowner. Just like ambassadors would in a nation. They knew that these people were the reps, the representatives of the landowner. But now he's sending his own son. His son is coming in the place of the father. He doesn't want to exert the same pressure by him coming in person. He sends his son who is the, in Farsi you say, valiat, right? He is the heir to the throne. He is the one who is representing the very presence of the father. So he sends his son, but the tenants, when they saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. This is the one who will inherit this land. This is the one who will we, our children will be working for, or we will be working for when the father passes away. So let's kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now Jesus is explaining this to the people listening. And they're listening to all of this and they realize that the, the squeeze is coming. They've already heard a few parables. They know what he's up to. And in that situation, 
the people that he is speaking to the most, the people that he is really addressing, not only the crowd, but he's also addressing a very specific group of people that are listening, and they're listening with a very sharp ear to squeeze him, to catch him. And who are those? They're the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the religious ones. Now, this is a parable. And the parable has got a boom. And the boom is going to grab the heart and squeeze it. So this is a parable. And there's a boom. Get ready to have your heart grabbed and squeezed because just as it spoke to them, it has to speak to us. Now, when the landowner of the vineyard comes, and he's coming, he sent his servants, he sent his son, they killed his son, he's still the landowner, he still has the title, it's his land, he has to collect, that was the deal. What will he do to those tenants? He's asking the people. So what would you think when the landowner comes? What would he do to those people? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce of the har- at the harvest time. You would agree with that, no? And there was the boom. You just got trapped by your own words. All those Israelites, uh, Israelites the Jews that were there listening to his story, know what the right answer is because they're, they know. They know they can't get away with stealing from a landlord. You know you can't get away from stealing from the landlord. You know the contract you have with God. You know the situation that God has entrusted you with your vineyard. And you're the farmer. And you're working the land. There's a price that you've paid or someone has paid to give you this land. The landowner paid the price. And you've killed his servants. The son died. And now the father is coming to collect. What would you think he's going to do to the bad tenants? Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord's doing, and it is, it is amazing in your eyes. He's telling them, He's the stone, He's the cornerstone. He's that little thing that sits at the corner that doesn't make any difference to the building. If you've built a building, there's a cornerstone. It just marks. It sets the standard of the corner of where the land is going to be built around or the property is going to be built around. It doesn't support anything much. It's very tiny, but it's very critical. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you And given to people that produce its fruit. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was speaking about them. That was the squeeze. That was that big boom at that time. Now don't let your mind wander. You can very easily sit here and say, oh, those Jewish leaders... This isn't about them. This is about the realization of the impact of the words of the parable in the heart of the listener. You're the listener today. You're the chief priest of your own garden. 
You're the chief priest of your own life. You're the chief priest of your own vineyard. And the Father has given you a vineyard and he's collecting. And he's coming to check and see the produce of your life. You know, a lot of principles, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd because they regarded him as a prophet. And you know in your heart that this Jesus that came and died, you know, it doesn't matter what they say, whether they say that uh, one that looks like him was crucified or not, but in fact it was him. You know, different religions have twisted the stories of Abraham and Isaac on the mountain. And it wasn't Isaac. They tell you it's Ishmael. It was Isaac. It was the son of promise. It wasn't the son of effort, human effort. It was the son that came from a miracle. And it's the same way with this. It's a son that has been born in human form to bring to us the landlord. And you and I have this land. I told you before that this is a piece of land. We're made from dust and at the end of our days we're going to be buried and it's going to turn to dust. We're responsible for this vineyard and the fruit that it produces. A lot of truths in the Bible relate to groups, nations, corporate, the church. The principle itself, I'm not saying all, I'm saying a lot. A lot of the principles that relate to the corporate also relate to the individual. So in this parable, the lesson is tend your vineyard. Is it coming up? There we go. Okay. The lesson is tend your vineyard. Tend your vineyard. Make sure that your vineyard is producing fruit. You know, in sales, if you're not producing, when the sales team meets, you want to hide in the corner. You don't want to be seen because you're ashamed of your numbers. If you're a franchise and they're listing all the different franchises' uh, accomplishments, you don't want to be seen if you're not producing. Right now, the Lord is wandering around us. There's nothing to hide from Him. He wants each of us to be Remax top producers with business cards that says top producer on them because He's given us a vineyard. Actually, it's not just even a vineyard. Some of us, he's just giving one vine. You're responsible for your one vine. If each of us in this congregation, responsible for that one vine, we come together and City River becomes a very fertile vineyard. Each one, you're responsible for just one vine. You know, years ago, when I was very young in the faith, one of the teachers that came to visit our church years ago, Samuel Pambakya, in the middle of a youth meeting, said these words. Ask yourself this question. What would my church be if every member was like me? Whew. 
it's even heavier today than it was back then. Back then, people used to attend church every Sunday, attend prayer meeting every Wednesday, attend Bible study every Friday. That's three days a week that the people were coming to the church and doing things. Today, it's a different time. It's post-COVID. People have a life. You can catch it online. You can listen to it on the podcast. You don't need to be here. But there's a certain discipline that even the scripture tells us, don't forsake assembling together. I'm not going to beat you up on this. But it's important for the vine to be in touch with other vines. You know the bees and how they jump from one plant to the other to do what they call pollination? When you're isolated in your own environment, you're protected from the bite of the bee. But you're also protected from the cross-pollination. And it doesn't produce as much fruit. And sometimes that fruit doesn't have longevity because it doesn't have the proper mix of DNA in it. So it doesn't produce the next generation. It's isolated. It's like a watermelon that is seedless. You can enjoy it, but it's not going to have another year's plant for the following year or seedless grapes. But when he created the plants, when he created all the animals, he put the seed in it according to its own kind so that it reproduces. So we need the cross-pollination. We need the rubbing of shoulders. We need the ideas that are... And this is a spiritual discipline. It's hard. I get it. It's really hard. It's really hard to be here every Sunday. It's really hard to be at Bible study or a small group every Wednesday or Friday. It's hard to be here next Saturday, uh, Friday at 7.30 for prayer. I get it. But we need it for the sake of our vine. Because he is coming and he's going to collect. And he is fair and righteous and loving and gracious. But he expects a return on his investment. He expects a return on his investment. A professor in, in one of the universities in the States, Arthur Brooks, has written an amazing book. Uh, book is called From Strength to Strength. If you get an opportunity to read it, it will, it will sh shape some of the thinking that you have about your own ability to function and to do well in life. He's a good Christian. Uh, grew up in a Pentecostal home and uh, is now a devout Catholic. And uh, he is a man of faith. So in describing the order that he has put in his life, because he knows he has to produce fruit at the end of his day, he knows that he has to present himself and stand before God and deliver on God's investment in him. He gets the fact that he may have just one talent, but he doesn't want to bury it. He wants to produce fruit for it. It may be two talents. It may be five talents. He wants to present it double, triple, whatever. He wants to come back with a good investment for his landowner. So he says these words. Everything that I do has to, and he has these four conditions that must be met. If the first one is not met, he nixes that whole project. Does it glorify God? 
Is this activity that I'm going to do? Is this project that I'm going to be involved with? Is this lecture that I'm going to uh, give to the students? Is this concept, this book I'm going to write? Whatever it is, is it going to glorify God? If it does, I move to the next step. Does it serve others? It could only serve me. It could only benefit me. But if it has to be in that order. It has to serve others. So if it doesn't, if it glorifies God but it serves no one, he's not sure he wants to do that. And then the third one is, I need to have an adventure doing it. It's got to be fun. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm not going to do it as a burden. If I do something that glorifies God and serves others, most of the time, most of the time, if you're a school teacher, if you're glorifying God with what you're doing and serving the kids and their parents and the school system, you're, you, you better have fun doing it. You know what I mean? If you're not having fun, rethink what you're doing. I'm not saying stop teaching. I'm saying rethink how you're teaching. If you're a lawyer, the same. If you're a housewife, the same. It doesn't matter what you do. If it glorifies God, keep doing it. If it serves others, keep doing it. But you've got to have fun. You gotta have, it's got to become an adventure. It can't be boring. God didn't create anyone for boring. And then he says, and it has to make a living. You can't just keep doing it if it bears no fruit. Financially, he's talking about here. Oh, that's, that's a slap in the face for some. I'm just doing it because, you know. Now, in my case, there are things I do that I believe I'm called to do. I have a lot of fun doing them. They're not necessarily making money. But I'm believing that God has kept me there for a purpose. So I carry on. Making a living. It doesn't mean get rich. It doesn't mean live poor. It means survive and and thrive both but it has to be in that order a lot of times we come at it from the bottom up what can i do that can make a lot of money what can i do and have fun doing it while i'm making money maybe i can serve others maybe it will glorify god that's backwards start with the right order and he picked up on this because of the disciplines of spirituality that he's come across in the Catholic Church. Now, you don't have to be a member of the Catholic Church to understand order and spirituality and disciplines. You're hearing it today. And the table has been flipped on you. And the parable has turned around. And he's brought you now to realize that he is going to collect from these tenants. So what do you want to do? How are you going to live your life in a way that will glorify him. How are you going to live your life in a way to serve others? How are you going to have fun doing it? The most fun I've ever had has always been with other people. It has never been alone. Yeah, once in a while I need alone. Once in a while I need to just grab my phone and read something in the Kindle app or, or something just quietly. Once in a while, I have to flip on a game on the phone and play these stupid games. I enjoy backgammon on the, on the phone, but I hate it when I lose. But even that is not alone because I'm playing some other person across the world. You know what I'm talking about? 
There's no gambling involved. I'm not investing any money in this. It's just a, a fun game that I play. But at the same time, all of these things, when you do them, if you do the first one and two and three right, usually four follows. If you're serving others, usually four follows. If you're mixed in with others and don't go journeying alone, you're going to have fun doing it. It's never boring with other people. Either you're going to have an argument, either you're going to have an interaction, you're going to share a meal, whatever it is, it's going to be fun. And if you're always fighting, maybe you're wearing the shoe too tight. Loosen the lace a little bit. When God planted the vineyard, the people of God were still in Egypt. The nation of Israel was still in Egypt. In Psalm 80, we read these words. Restore us, O God of hosts, O God of armies. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Those rabbis, those priests, those high chief priests that were listening knew this psalm, knew that Jesus was talking to them about a nation. But he's talking to them about individuals in that nation because the people loved him. Remember what we read in, at the end of the passage? It says that here, it says that they wanted to arrest him. Who? The chief priests and the Pharisees. They were the ones that were caught in the parable. But the people loved him. So the vines that were producing the fruit of response and reaction to him were loving him. And inside each one of us, not inside the church, inside each one of us, there is the religious and there is the faithful. Inside each one of us, there is the religious that wants to look good, wants to be in control, but there is the faithful that will react to the word. And that faithful is now reacting as you're hearing these words. You want to do what God wants you to do. You want to bear the fruit. That faithful is reacting. And the Pharisee wants to squeeze him out and shut him up because he, the Pharisee inside you wants to be in control. Doesn't want Jesus to be in control. Does not, God, does not want God to be in control. And he's fighting, but he knows he can't fight too hard because he knows that the good in you wants it. So he's going to wait. He's going to wait for the right time where you're weak to be able to crush the people's will, the goodwill inside you, and kick Jesus out and kill him outside. So be careful. This is a warning to all of us as to how we're going to do this. And when God brought Israel out and gave them this bring them out of Egypt as slaves and set them up and give them now make them a nation. He gave them something on the mountain. We were singing earlier and when the sacrifice was made and when your glory fell, the people lay on the ground, fell on the face on the ground and they worshiped. You know when that also happened? Yes, it happened at different times. But there was one key time right after this when he brought that vine out of Egypt, when they were at Mount Sinai and Moses was on the mountain and God rumbled and his finger wrote on tablets. I love these woods, these pieces of plank here, because they remind me of the tablets of Moses. 
I wish there would be a hand right now that would just come in and write on these woods. Wouldn't that freak us out? But this is what it wrote. Now, whenever we read the Ten Commandments, we can read, or whenever we hear them, we have the option to turn on our left ear or our right ear. Our left ear, it doesn't matter which one, one of our ears will hear it as a do this, don't do this. Right? Law. We can also hear it differently. We can hear it as the designer's built-in design. You follow what I mean by that? This remote, this button, shall do nothing but turn on and off the projector. Is that a law for it? No, that's how it's designed. This button, the green button, will flip on the laser. You can see the laser. Is that a law for it? No, it's its design. So when we read the Ten Commandments, we can think of them as a straitjacket that binds us into what we can and can't do, or we can look at it as the designer's dream of what his people will be able to do when they walk in covenant with him. When you're walking in covenant, in other words, you're fertilizing the vine, you're bringing it to the place where it's now being nourished by the word of God, by the washing of the blood, by the cleansing of the spirit and the functioning of the church together. When you're in that environment, in the right vineyard, walking together with others, when you're doing that, you shall have no other God but God. You'll not be worshiping idols. It's not a command, but it's a reality. When you step into that realm, that will become your reality. You will have, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves idols. You will have no desire to make an idol. Because you're face to face with the reality of who the real God is. Whether in the form of anything that is in the heaven above or that it's in the earth below. You know, I came to this realization. I've told you this before. I was watching a Sunday school class when Salpi was teaching and she taught the Ten Commandments. And when she taught it, she taught it using her hands and her fingers. There's one God, first commandment. You shall have no other God higher than God. Right? And then you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Three. What was number four? Remember the Sabbath, you can't use your thumb, so you can't get much done. As humans, we have to use our thumb. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Five, honor your parents and your, your mother and your father so that you would be blessed and have a long life in the land that I'm going to give you. Six, don't bear false witness. Where? Go back here. What was six, Selfie? Help me out here. You shall not commit murder. Five and six, you shan't, can't kill anybody. Seven, you won't commit adultery. You're not going to go off with somebody else and do the wrong thing. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you'll not bear false witness. And ten, you're not going to covet your neighbor's wife and his monkeys and donkeys and all the rest of the animals. Right? When I realized that, I also realized something else. I didn't just remember them now. It's easy to remember them. And you can practice this at home. But I realized something else. It's built into me. 
It's built into me. It's not external to me anymore. It became my operating system. I'm not saying I'm perfect and I'm holy and I don't commit any of these sins and I break any of these commandments because my will is still active in all of us. But the Ten Commandments are not just commandments, but they're the ten defaults of the new operating system that we have. They're the new ringtones. They're the new screensavers. They're the new file system. They're the new thinking that God has imprinted into each one of us when we say yes. We still have the option of going back to the old default. We still have the option to go to the preferences and still choose me over him. But he sent his son. He sent his son so that we can come into alignment and be recipients of the vineyard's fullness, aligned with the landlord, bearing the fruit, and producing the yield that he's expecting. Let's all stand and make a commitment to him today. On this Thanksgiving Sunday, let's just commit to him that we will let the new operating system flow in our lives and become the new reality. Father, we thank you. We thank you for parables. We thank you for the reality of what Jesus, you have accomplished. We thank you for making the Ten Commandments our new direction, our new sense of identity. Because it is your spirit who lives in us, who burns with us this new, fresh thing that you have made us to be. Lord, we want to be fruitful vineyards. We want to be a fruitful vineyard as a river. We want to be fruitful vines, each one of us, bearing fruit so that you would be glorified in receiving what we have done with what you have trusted us with. Lord, we promise today afresh, we need your help, Holy Spirit, but we promise we align our will with yours. And we say, have your way. Have your way, Jesus. Have your way. We don't want to have our life at the end stand before you and say, oh, I wish. Today we say, oh, I wish. Forgive me for the past, but today I realign. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.